We're getting there. We're going through our series we're calling Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. The Apostle Paul is giving instruction to a church that he planted or started uh, years earlier that had kind of gone wayward and was no longer moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. And over the last three weeks, we've been talking about this three-chapter argument. He didn't have chapters. We've put that on since to help us locate it, but uh, it's three chapters, so it's a, a long argument about how they're not using their spiritual gifts properly in the family of God, that they've actually uh, strayed from the peculiar wisdom of Christ, which is what? That God became man and humbled himself so that he might give his life as a ransom for many, for the forgiveness of sin, that we might have new life because of his resurrected life. And does that sound like what we've been reading about the church in Corinth. No, they were elevating certain individuals with certain more spectacular or supernatural gifts over and above the humble gifts. And Paul's saying, that's so out of step with the gospel of Jesus that I, that I need to help you guys see how to organize your gathering when you come together. And so, um, trying to bring you up to speed just a little bit about where we've been. And so we finally get to the to the third chapter of this argument, and we're going to go through all 40 verses today. And this third chapter is really going to get at the heart of the issue, which is that they were preferring the gift of tongues over and above, which the gift of tongues is, is speaking to God, and, and some people say like an angelic language, or it's an unintelligible language unless there's somebody to interpret. But they were preferring those and highlighting those gifts over and above other gifts such as the gift of prophecy, which was intelligible to all. And Paul's going to say, please don't do that. And he's going to tell us why. But we've been leading up to this. Um, now you said, Dave, well, okay, one of the things you're going to realize as we get into this today, today I'm going to tackle two topics that, would, that have historically broken churches apart. Whole denominations have been created because of these two issues. Families have been torn apart because of these two issues. So if, if you're smart, you're thinking, why in the world are you trying to do both in one sermon? Here's why. It's not the most important issue. Neither of them. They're not issues to divide over. They're not issues to start new denominations over. And so to give them more room than they deserve would be to fall into the trap of making them something they should not be, which is ultimate. So I'm just going to try to tackle them all right here this morning, as only we can at Sedaris, but we're going to dive into it. And um, just to show you how not important these are, they're important, okay, they're in the Word of God, so they're important, but they're not the most important, just to show you that, I had a decision to make yesterday. I had been given, gifted, two free tickets to the Husky game. And I was thinking to myself, I'm going to have to tackle two issues that have blown up whole denominations in one sermon tomorrow. I should probably get my sleep. Game started at 7.30 p.m. But you know what I said to myself? This is not the most important sermon you'll ever <laughs> preach. Let's go to the game. So I took my son Grace into the game, and we had a great time. Got home about midnight. No big deal. Feeling great. So... I want to say that up front because when we get into it, something's going to stir in you. 
depending on your background, depending on where, where you're at theologically, something's going to stir in you. And I want you to be sure it's the peculiar wisdom of Christ that's stirring up in you through the Holy Spirit and not something else. Not some other spirit, some spirit of pride, some spirit of fear, some spirit of culture, some spirit of being fitting in, whatever, whatever it is. Just make sure, God, is, is this your spirit that's stirring me to your peculiar wisdom? Listen, this should not be something that breaks any of us apart if we allow what we talked about last, last week to lead. What did we talk about last week? Love. Love. And that's exactly where Paul starts this week. What does he say? Chapter 14, verse 1. He starts to remind us what he's just said about love. He said, pursue love. So as we engage these topics, we want to pursue love as we go. So, um, last week's sermon, way more important than this week's sermon. Who says that? I do. Seriously, last week's sermon is more important than this week's sermon. But this week's sermon is important. It's in the Word of God. And so we want to try to find clarity on these issues as much as we can. And that's, in fact, Paul's big idea. Me and Tylene came up with this slogan, wrote it on our whiteboard. Things get written on our whiteboard, they stay for years. So you can go find it. It's up there. And what we said is our job at Sedaris, and I think this is what Paul's saying to the Corinthians, is we want to help people consider in clarity, not consider in confusion. The, the world and the enemies of God are stirring up confusion so that our consideration cannot be effective. And what our job is, as teachers of the Word, is to create clarity in your consideration. You still have to do the considering. You still have to talk to God about this stuff, but we want to give you clarity in your consideration. And that's what Paul's saying here. That's like the big idea. He said, we need clarity in our consideration of the most important things. So he's going to tell us then, when we gather together, the things that we should focus on and the things maybe we should leave to the more private parts of our walk with God, because when we gather together, we should be creating clarity for our consideration. So wherever you are, whether you've been walking and, and you feel strong in the Lord now, you need clarity in your consideration of Jesus. Whether today is the first day you've ever walked into a church, maybe somebody dragged you, drug you here, maybe, maybe you're coming back after a long way away and you've had, had a lot of confusion about who God is and what the church is meant for. My hope today is you have more clarity for your consideration of Jesus. That's all I care about. If you don't find that clarity, send me an email. Call me. Let's get clear. I want, that's my job. God has put it on my heart to help you get clear in your consideration. Not do it for you. I can't consider for you. But I can give you some clarity as you consider the person and the work of Jesus and what it means for all of your life, both now and forevermore. Amen? So that's what we're going to do. And of course, the way we're going to do it is by playing an audio clip for you that you're not going to understand. Go ahead, play that audio clip. Listen carefully. I want to know, I want to know if anybody understands what's being said. Go ahead. Talk, 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 but that muk like van bekernis. Kufa yablak san vakcha put jesek de pag sing bit ahe suv me nuk me suk de at suv mo rin mok de. 
איך? קום. קום נך. אץ קום די, תיק אוי, וואסה נדאו את ג'טונס בוקבור דאג' רינבוק לחדר. אין מבוק מבאם ארי רוצקנדמן. I was told by a brother of someone that somebody might recognize it. No? Okay. What you have just been witness to was a dramatic reading of the famous soliloquy from Hamlet, to be or not to be. In the Klingon language made popularized by Star Trek, Now all the, all the Trekkies are like, ah, I have heard this. <laughs> And it is the question. Okay. Now, I could have played you. Now, just watch the layers of this. We presented something. It was profound. If you know, it's probably one of the most famous speeches in all of English literature. And it is profound. But nobody could understand it. It was spoken in a tongue that none of you understood. And to be honest, there were no interpreters here. I thought there might be one. There wasn't. Nobody was able to interpret. And so only the Klingons in the room <laughs> could be edified by this speech. Now, on the other hand, watch here. I'm going to start here. That is the least clear. I could go here, and I could have read you, and some of you know that I have have a historical performance of this particular soliloquy that was top-notch, top-notch, in the 12th grade. I won't repeat it for you now. But, but, but if I did, and I read it word for word with, with perfect balance and tenor and tempo, guess what? 95% of you still wouldn't have known <laughs> what in the world Shakespeare was talking about. You may have a little bit more idea. But even, even Shakespearean English is difficult to understand. So that would not have been the most clear thing that I could have presented to you as the church. Now, I did find online, and I want to read it to you, a modern translation of the speech. And when you hear it, some of your 12th grade minds are going to come alive like, that's what it's about? That's profound. So I'm going to read it to you. Ready? Where's my glasses? Here we go. To live or to die, that is the question. Is it nobler to suffer through all the terrible things fate throws at you or to fight off your troubles and in doing so, end them completely? To die, to sleep, because that's all dying is. And by a sleep, I mean an end to all the headache and the thousand injuries that we are vulnerable to. That's an end to be wished for, to die, to sleep. To sleep, perhaps to dream, yes, but there, there's the catch. Because the kinds of dreams that might come in that sleep of death, after you have left behind your mortal body, are something to make you anxious. That's the consideration that makes us suffer. 
the calamities of life for so long. I won't finish, though you want me to. Why? Because you understand now. What is Hamlet wrestling with? Whether to take his own life or to go on living and therefore suffering. Now you understand. Now you can consider for yourself. Fear of death. What comes after keeps us living this life that is full of trouble? How profound. Perhaps we've all considered these things. And so Paul is going to tell us, yes, there's such thing as the gift of tongues. And he's going to say, I speak in tongues more than any of you, but I don't bring it to you when we gather together because unless there's an interpreter, you won't understand what I'm revealing, what I'm saying, and you'll be lost. I'll be edified. It'll be good for me. I might even be celebrated as someone that's so spiritual, but you will not be edified. You will sit there with looks on your face. You will not grow. You will not be challenged to consider further. And so therefore, let's prefer... Not even the rantings of an eloquent orator of God's word, but in the clear teaching that we can understand, that we can apply to our life, that will move us from where we are to somewhere greater. This is what we prefer when we gather together as a church. That's why we gather, to build up, you'll hear him say again and again, one another. So I've titled my sermon this week, if you're a student of the YouTube page, <laughs> you've seen this. To speak or not to speak? That is the question. We'll ask that from a number of perspectives. Who's to speak? When should they speak? How much should they speak? What is the order that leads to the building up of the body when we gather together? That's what Paul's focused on here. I want to flip to the very end of his argument. I want, to, I want you to hear his conclusion so that you don't get lost in the weeds as we get there. Verse 37 says this. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. So Paul's very much aware of his prophetic calling as one sent by the Lord Jesus himself. Verse 38, if anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, which is intelligible speech, understandable speech, and do not forbid speaking in other tongues. I don't want you to miss that, because you can make some hard arguments against speaking in tongues, and when and, and how to do that, but he said, don't forbid it, but, verse 40, but everything is to be done Decently and in order. God is not a God of disorder. God is a God of order. God is not a God of dishonor. God is a God of honor. And so we have to ask what is decent, what is orderly for the building up of the saints to do the work of the ministry. We have to ask that question as a community. When we come together, the Corinthians had to ask that as a community. When they come together, the Klingons have to ask that. No, they don't have to ask that question. <laughs> Can't not, I can't not share this because I just realized it literally now. On our drive home, we went with some friends from Grayson's soccer team. We drove to the game. 
on the way home, an older kid in the car was trying to convince Grayson that aliens were real. And I didn't even click that I was talking about Klingons this morning. And Grayson's like, they do not exist. He said, there's a 99% chance they do not exist. <laughs> and this 11-year-old kid was like, oh, they do. <laughs> it was so funny. Grayson, if you're listening, Klingons do not exist. Sorry, everyone. As far as we know. Okay. So, let's... Um, Let me read it. Let me read it, and then we'll dive further in, okay? Let me read it. Here we go. So, again, Paul, Paul emphatically says, pursue love, 14.1. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. He's just said love is way more important than having any particular spiritual gift, but you should desire them. And especially that you may prophesy. For the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God, since no one understands him. He speaks mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. I wish all of you spoke in other tongues, but even more that you prophesied. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may be, here it is again, built up. So now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you speaking in another tongue, how will I benefit you unless I speak to you with a revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? Even lifeless instruments, back to our marching band analogy from a couple weeks ago, even if lifeless instruments that produce sound, whether the flute or harp, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or the harp be recognized? Again, it's a noisy gong like we talked about last week. In fact, if the bugle makes an unclear sound, who will prepare for battle? Let me just pause there. Why does he bring up the bugle? Besides being an underappreciated snack, we don't know much about the bugle. The bugle called the army to battle. I don't, I don't think this is unintentional. Yeah, he's talking about the flute and the harp, and, and those are beautiful to the ears, and what if we didn't have beauty? But what if we didn't hear the call to battle? What if we missed that? What would happen to our brothers and sisters? They're going out to war. Where's the rest? See, this matters. That we would have clarity in the communication from God. Lives are at stake here. This isn't unimportant. This isn't just about how good the music is. This is about whether or not we will live and thrive or whether we will perish. Verse 9. In the same way, unless you use your tongue for intelligible speech, how will what is spoken be known? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. 
Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gift, seek to excel in building up the church. We've been talking about this for a couple weeks. God is giving you spiritual gifts to use in the community of Christ for the edification and the building up of others. You've got to figure out what those gifts are. One way you can do that is ask people, when do you see me come alive? When do you see love pour out of my veins? That usually means a spiritual gift is at work. You've got to figure out what it is and be zealous for using those gifts to build up your brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 13. Therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Think understanding, think, but my mind. What then? I will pray in the spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. So he's saying, you, do, you will do both, and you have to figure out when to do one and when to do the other. Say, so you will pray in your spirit, but you'll also pray with your understanding. I will sing praise, he says, with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. Otherwise, if you praise with the Spirit, how will the outsider say amen at your giving of thanks? So if you speak a thanksgiving or sing a song of praise for God, but you speak in a tongue that no one else but God recognizes, how will the outsider hear what you're saying and say, that's so true, amen? That's when you say amen. That's so true. So I assume I don't say true things very often because nobody says amen. <laughs> okay? So if you think I'm saying something true, say amen. Okay? So how will somebody do that if you're speaking in a language that nobody but you understands? That's the gift of tongues. Unless you have an interpreter that can tell, hey, this is what was just spoken in tongues, and now somebody can say amen. See what's going on here? So Paul's thinking about the outsider, the person who isn't familiar yet with Christ, and also for those other brothers and sisters who don't have the gift of interpretation, which is most. Verse 17. For you may very well be giving thanks. He's saying it's true. What you're saying is an amazing expression of the Spirit within you. But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. Why does he thank God for that? Because he wants them to know that he's not just jealous. He's not just saying, well, this isn't an important gift because I don't have it. He's saying, I do have this gift, and it's a beautiful gift. Look what he says next. Yet, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others than 10,000 words in another tongue. Wow. Sort of makes the point pretty clear. I would rather speak five words that are intelligible, that teach others, that pass on the faith, than 10,000 words in another tongue. Brothers and sisters, he says, don't be foolish, excuse me, uh, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. Then he goes on to this strange allusion to the Old Testament, and it won't make sense, and I'll explain it in just a sec. He says this, It is written in the law, which means in the Old Testament, and he's now going to quote Isaiah 28. 
says it's written in Isaiah 28. I will speak to this people by people of other tongues, by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Then he goes on. He says, speaking in other tongues, then, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church assembles together, and all are speaking in another tongue, and people who are outsiders or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds, that you're mad, that you're crazy? But if you are all prophesying, and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all, and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. Okay. That was probably a little confusing there. He quotes Isaiah 28, which is a passage about the Assyrians are about to come and conquer the people of Israel, because the people of Israel, this is in the northern kingdom, after the kingdom had already split, they are prone to drunkenness. So they're drunk, even their, this passage, if you go and read it, even their, their priests are getting drunk and using the temple sacrifices for their own indulgence. So it's just a mess. And so Isaiah prophesies that a foreign people who end up being the Assyrians are going to come in, that don't speak their language, and they are going to conquer them. And, and Paul says, this is actually a sign of judgment against people of God. And then he flips around and seems to say the opposite thing, that tongues is for the outside, or speaking in tongues is better for, uh, not for the outsider, but for the insider. Now, what's really happening here, it's very confusing, he's doing two things, and he doesn't tell you that he switched things. The first thing he's saying is, listen, you remember Isaiah 28, stop acting out of control. Stop being even drunk in the Holy Spirit so that when outsiders come in, they think that's what you are, even if you're actually not. He's saying, listen, that does not witness to the orderly God of the universe. That witnesses to something else. So actually, if that's what your community is known for, disorder, undecency, even in the expression of your gifts, God will judge that. God will judge that. That's why he brings up Isaiah 28. And then he goes on to say, the second thing he's trying to say is this. Actually, using the gift of prophecy is better for both the insider and the outsider, both the believer and the unbeliever. Why? Because for the believer, it builds us up. We have something to learn. We have a way to grow our mind and apply it to our lives. For the believer. For the unbeliever who just happens to be walking by, if they just walked in from the outside and I was speaking in a language that nobody else understood, they would probably walk back out. They would think, wow, this is a crazy place. And they wouldn't come and consider Jesus with us. So he's actually saying, using the gift of prophecy when we gather together, which is the intelligible gift, is best for everyone. That's what's going on there. Hopefully that made sense. He continues. He continues. What then, brothers and sisters, this is verse 28, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, 
or an interpretation. He's saying all of these things could be happening when you gather together. But then he says this, everything is to be done for building up. So if some, any of those things is not for building up, let's just leave it out for now, okay? He says, if anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two, or at the most three. So he does say there are times when we gather together that speaking in tongues is appropriate, but only two, perhaps, or maybe three. And then he says, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent. I want you to underline, keep silent. That's an important, uh, you'll see why that's so important in a sec. If there's no interpreter, that person with that supernatural spiritual gift given by the Holy Spirit is to keep silent. Whether that's a man or a woman who has this gift, Paul says keep silent if there's no interpreter. Even if there is an interpreter, just two, maybe three. You see what? He's, there's limits here, he says. Orderliness equals Limits. You just can't let everybody get up and go. Even then, people had to eat lunch. So, verse 29. Sorry, sorry, let me finish verse 28. It says, so keep silent in the church, so when you're gathered, and speak to himself and God, and you can insert here, at home, or after the gathering is over, after the church meeting is over. Um, he says, then go and share what God had put on your heart through the, the gift of tongues. And then he goes, moreover, verse 29, two or three prophets should speak, and others sh the others should evaluate. Who are the others? I think he's talking about, one, all of us. You've heard me say, and it's my prayer over this morning, too, that anything that is from God, may it stir and resonate in your hearts and move you towards Christ's likeness. Anything that is not from God, that he has not spoken, May it just go in one ear and out the other. So Paul's calling all of us to evaluate, and we'll see in a second, and there are certain people in the community that have the responsibility to evaluate when, when the gift of prophecy is used. And I'll explain what the gift of prophecy is in just a sec. But he's saying two or three prophets could get up, so there's limits to that too. And everyone should evaluate. But if someone has been revealed to another person sitting there, if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent, underline, be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one. So, obviously, let me just say this if it's not obvious, the way they did church then is not exactly how we do it now. But clearly what he's saying is somebody has shared and prophesied and then another person receives perhaps a spontaneous or perhaps something prepared, word from the Lord, and the first senator should give way to the second senator and they might come up and share. And so there's an order to this. We don't speak over each other is what he's saying. He's saying let the person finish and then when he's done or seems to be done, the other person can say, excuse me, I, I feel like I have a word from the Lord that I'd like to share. So there's order to this. There's honor to this. There's decency to this. And if one person prophesying is done, then he should be silent and allow someone else to go. Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. So there's something that happens when we prophesy that's a bit of learning and there's something that happens that's a bit of encouragement there's multiple things happening when someone shares 
a prophetic word. Verse 32. And the prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So what's this mean? The prophet's spirits are subject to the prophets. He is saying, yes, all of us must discern. God, is that a word from you? Or do I need to just let that go in ear one in, in ear one in one ear and out the other? But then there are specific people who have prophetic roles within the community who have a responsibility to discern whether the spirit of the one prophesying, whether they have this role or not, is prophesying of the Lord. We'll see why that's so important, that there are specific people who God calls out to be responsible for. Even though everybody does it, there are certain people responsible for, as I like to say, Bobby Boucher, the preacher. Old reference to an old movie about a football player who tackles very hard. And so I, I tell some of, the, some of the folks in the church, I say, if I get up there and I'm saying anything that's not according to sound doctrine, you need to come up and tackle me right quick. I'm a pretty big guy, so you might need two of you. Don't send up Farrell here on his own. Pastor Ryan bounced right off. <laughs> but Pastor Ryan's like, yeah, right, I'll take you down. <laughs> you probably could take me down. Low man wins. Low man wins. So um, that's what he's saying. So there's even order in who has responsibility to make sure that whatever is being spoken and prophesied is according to the Holy Spirit. Okay. So now's where it gets real interesting for Seattleites in 2022. Don't Bobby Boucher me until I explain what I think this means. Here we go. Second half of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints. So Paul is saying... This is, what I'm about to say is true of all the churches, not just you Corinthians. You Corinthians might have a particular affinity for this kind of disorder, but it's true of all the saints. So I'm not just singling you guys out just because, okay? It says, for all the church of the, of the saints, verse 34, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to submit themselves as the law, as the Old Testament also says, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate from you? Or did it come to you only? He's making a rhetorical, of course not. He's saying, you guys aren't special. You guys didn't figure something out that nobody has ever figured out. This is true of all the churches. He's saying, revere the law. This has been going on for the people of God since the beginning. And then he goes into what we finished with. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should recognize that what I write to you is the Lord's command. If anyone ignores this, he will be ignored. So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in other tongues. But everything is to be done decently and in order. So, now you see why this is a lot to tackle in one Sunday. But the reason why I didn't want to break out a whole nother sermon on verses 33 to 36 is Paul's making this argument 
within the context of his bigger argument, which is, hey, when we express our gifts in community, when we all gather together, let's do it decently in order and in order. He's not making a standalone argument for women's roles in the church or women in ministry or women preach. That's not what he's doing. And oftentimes people helicopter into this verse and take it out to teach on that issue. Now, it has something to say because this is true of all the churches, he says. And this was true of the law. And so we have to mine this for the principles that are to be applied in every church in all places at all times. But it's coming in the larger argument of should we speak in tongues or should we prefer prophecy and intelligible speech? And how then are men and women to order themselves in all of that? Landmines everywhere. But let's dig a little deeper. So it'll take me a second to get... What time do we have? Okay. It'll take me a second to get exactly to these verses that you probably really want to hear me talk about on uh, this idea of women remaining silent. Um, probably obvious to you that we don't require women to stay silent from the time they walk in to the time they leave. Okay, I just want to make sure everybody knows that. And that's not what Paul means at all. But before we get there, let me just say a few things about these spiritual gifts of utterance, because that's what Paul's talking about, to speak or not to speak, and he's talking more broadly, not just about men and women, he's talking about who's to speak and when to speak and how to speak and the order and the limits. You heard all of that, right, in this? One or two and in order, all of that stuff. So we're talking about the spiritual gifts of utterance. Not every spiritual gift is a spiritual gift of utterance, or as my favorite professor like to say, Doug Grotheis, acoustic blasts, okay, acoustic blasts, so the spiritual gifts of acoustic blasts, how do those function in the people of God, and I count five spiritual gifts of utterance, or spiritual gifts of acoustic blast, that Paul is referring to, the first is prophecy, what is prophecy, prophecy, it's the intelligible proclamation of God's revelation, so that could be prepared, like I've prepared a sermon here, so that could be prepared as I've studied the prophets, capital P prophets. This is God's revealed world, and so any good preacher will start with true prophecy. We know this is true prophecy, and I will try to help make it intelligible and understandable to you. So preaching is a part of prophecy, but it should come and flow through the source, which is God has called the apostles to be the New Testament prophets who hear a word from God, and now it's my job as I exercise the current gift of prophecy, which is I don't have anything new, we don't add to Scripture, but I help clarify um, through inspiration and preparation, clarify what this prophecy seems to be saying both to the Corinthians and to us today. So it's intelligible proclamation of God's revelation, both prepared or spontaneous. So sometimes God might just bring a word of spontaneity. That may have happened with Ryan this morning. He didn't tell me he was going to talk about what Sedaris means. He probably felt the Holy Spirit come on him. I feel like I need to explain what considering is, because that's what we're doing this morning. And he shared it spontaneously. So that's what prophecy is. 
It's not limited to preaching, but preaching definitely falls within that category. Um, but I don't think it's limited to that category. Uh, here's a good definition of prophecy that I heard. It's the soul comprehending divine things with its divine eye and interpreting them to humans. He said again, the soul comprehending divine things with the divine eye and interpreting them to humans. So if you're not interpreting them to humans, it's not prophecy. <laughs> but if you're also just reading, say, the Bible academically, it's also not prophecy. You see? There's this in-between where we're, 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 we're asking God, show me what you have in this for your people, and then we're expressing it in such a way. So it's both the comprehension from, with a divine eye and the interpretation with, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and then the proclamation of this revelation by the help of the Holy Spirit. All of those are involved in prophecy, whether it's in preaching or whether it's in a one-on-one -on -one situation. So you can use the gift of prophecy in so many ways, not just from the pulpit. The pulpit actually becomes a problem when we try to interpret these things because we, we tend to think this is where all the magic happens. No. The pulpit, this is a music stand, but they used to have nice big pulpits. Um, you can't afford that kind of stuff here. But the pulpit used to have a kind of power, and it does have power, but probably too much. No pulpits in Paul's day. So we've got to move past the pulpit and ask, when we gather together in any form, how do we express these, the gift of prophecy? And that's the one Paul's saying, prefer that. God will use that for the believer and the unbeliever. So we also see in this uh, text the gift of tongues, another gift of utterance, an acoustic blast. And this can be similar to prophecy, but does require a translator or an interpreter to make it intelligible and therefore to edify. And so as we've already said, that makes this one a little bit more problematic when we all gather together because it may be a holy soliloquy, but one that others do not comprehend. There's risks to that. The outsider coming in and thinking, yikes, I don't know if I could really be a part of this. This is kind of scary, it's kind of uh, too foreign. We want the dinner table of Christ to be open to all to come and consider and experience the intelligible expression of who God is and what he's done through his son Jesus Christ. The third I see in verse 15 is what? Pray. He says, you'll pray with the Spirit, and you'll pray with understanding. So, I think that will happen when we gather. We have Some people have the gift of prayer. Pastor Ryan has the gift of prayer. I've told him this, that when he prays, something happens to him. Again, this is one of the ways you can help people identify their spiritual gifts, because Ryan doesn't, it just happens to him. And when he begins to pray, something profound happens, at least to my hearing ears. When he prays, it's like the Spirit of God takes control in a way that doesn't even happen when he's prepared a prophetic. And he also has the gift of prophecy as a preacher. But when he prays, something happens. So do you know people like that, that when they pray, something happens? It's like they get smarter, they get more clear, they get funnier. Like something, you're like, what happened to you? I was praying. <laughs> okay, that means you have a spiritual gift. So use it. Use it. I often ask Ryan in meetings, would you pray for us? Not that I can't pray, but he has a spiritual gift of prayer. So I want to let that, let that edify. So that's third. Fourth, sing praise. Also verse 15, singing praises. And we see it again in verse 26. 
come together with somebody has a hymn, somebody has a teaching, a revelation. We see that a hymn, a song. People have the gift of musical, spiritually infused musical giftedness. And they're acoustic blasts. And this is funny. Go listen to, like, experience it in here. Then go watch it online, and you'll be like, what was going on? Seriously. You're like, it sounded so different in the moment, in the room. Why is that? You're experiencing the Spirit of God pressing through someone's natural gifting that doesn't quite go, however that all works. I don't understand how there's a camera there, and I'm being taken all over the world right now, but it does, and something gets lost, and that's you can't transport the Spirit through electronics. You can't. You can export um, knowledge or teaching or content, but not the Spirit. So that happens. Somebody, when they express a hymn or they sing a praise, they have a spiritual gift of utterance that something happens to those exact same frequencies and vibrations, and it has a power that you can't quite explain. You can't replicate it. Uh, And then the fifth I see is the gift of challenging a prophecy. So this becomes so important when we want to understand what Paul is saying about women remaining silent in the gathering. I believe what Paul is saying seems to me what he is saying because he he says it right on the heels of right and the prophets are subject to the prophets since God is a, God, not a God of disorder but of peace and then he says as in all the churches the women should remain silent in the churches just as it is in the law i think here's what i think he's saying he's saying there is a spiritual gift of utterance which is the challenge of prophecy And that responsibility God gives to a certain few in the community. And they're the ones that should speak up. Now, all of us should discern whether or not this is from the Lord. But the ones that should speak up are the ones who have been gifted with the gift of discernment and called to the responsibility of speaking up if somebody gets up here and says something that's not of the Lord. And Paul is saying... That God, since the time of the Old Testament, does not give that responsibility to the women of the church. Or a better way to say it, he does not put that responsibility on the women of the church. Therefore, wait, and if you, need a clar- if you want to ask clarifying questions, if you want to um, talk more about it, wait until after the gathering is over and talk about it at home. That's all he's saying. He's not being heavy-handed here. Feels heavy-handed, right? Like if you like, you might go to jail <laughs> in Seattle. I might go. I might not be here next week. Now Ryan is supposed to preach next week, so if you don't see me, don't assume I'm in jail for saying these words out loud. But like, that's why I said underline. Who has he also told to keep silent? People with the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues and angelic language but don't have an interpreter present. He says, keep quiet. Who else does he say it to? He goes on and he says it to those with the gift of prophecy. He says, once one's done, then that person needs to keep quiet. Be silent. So Paul, even though his language feels 
a bit harsh when we just read it out of context. He's really telling a lot of people to be silent in a lot of different circumstances. He's telling person number four, five, six, and seven that may, might have a word of knowledge or a revelation that God has given them, you're to keep silent too until next week or until you get home. He's telling everybody that's not number one, number two, uh, or perhaps number three, uh, who has an angelic tongue, a, 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 a word in tongues, and an interpreter. He's telling number four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten to keep silent. He's telling those who don't have an interpreter to be silent. He's telling the prophets, number maybe three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, to keep quiet until you get home. And he's telling the women of the church. Or it could be because the same Greek word for women means wives, the wives of the church, to wait and not interrupt, not create confusion, not speak up um, and ask a question, or, or, or definitely not be the ones to challenge the prophecy because there's people who have that responsibility in the community. He's just saying, wait, let's talk about that at home rather than throw the whole gathering off course. You ever had that experience? Of somebody that could be a man or a woman who just, who just speaks up and takes the whole meeting in another direction? Paul's just saying, show some... He's just saying, ask God for the wisdom to know when and how to speak up in this. And he's just saying, the ones who are called to speak against a prophecy that might not be for the Lord are a select few men in the church. And at Sedaris Church, and I'll show you in a second from First Timothy chapter 2 and chapter 3, it seems to be that God calls those people overseers or elders. That's how it all fits together. Now, I had a funny little joke here that I'm going to share. And because it's Seattle in 2022, I have to tell you I'm about to tell the joke. And I have to tell you that I asked Tylene if I could tell this joke to make sure it's not a bad joke. Maybe what's simply going on here... Uh-oh, we got people getting up. <laughs> okay. okay, maybe what's simply going on here is it's as simple as this. At least for me, and it may be true for others, when I go to a movie with my wife, she tends to be the one that elbows me one to three minutes into the movie and asks, what's going on here? And I usually say, I have no idea. <laughs> I'll let you know at the end. Right? Um, approved, that's a Tylene approved joke. Talk to her if you have questions. Okay. My point being, it could be as simple as this. Even though it feels harsh, Paul's just pointing out an obvious thing that we just notice in human nature. That, you know, when husbands and wives do something together, typically the wife is more anxious to kind of understand what's going on than the husband. This could be because the husband's falling asleep. It could be because the husband, you know, can't admit he doesn't know what's going on. There could be a lot of reasons, but there, is, there does seem to be a natural sort of thing here happening that Paul might, it might be that simple. It's, it's been blown up into this huge thing, and churches have split over it, and people leave Christianity because of it, and Paul might be just saying like, hey, when you go to the movie, just wait for the movie to be over, and then we can talk about it. Let's not interrupt what's going on. And because it, one particular gender is more prone to that, and part of the reason I asked Tylene is because she's a media major, she's won Malaysian Emmys for 
video editing. She usually gets what's going on. So this is, this is a generality. I get that. It's not the case in every marriage and probably not in Tylene's marriage. But there is, the reason it, the joke kind of works is there is some naturalness to, we could understand what's going on here. Paul's just saying, because we, we want to do everything in decency and in order, let's just wait and have those conversations after the fact. Not everything has to be clarified in the moment. And he's saying it in love. He's saying it in love for the insider, that they might be edited, and he's saying it in love for the outsider, that we might show honor to one another, particularly husbands and wives. I mean, particularly if like a wife is in the middle of her husband's sharing, speaking up and being like, that's wrong, honey. <laughs> you know, this could have been happening. We don't know. Corinth was a wild place. And Paul's just saying, let's be known for our decency and our order. And yet this passage has been blown up into fighting words on two, two armies that should be fighting together against evil and sin and darkness, and now are fighting one another because of this verse. So, what would decency and order look like in Sedaris Church in 2022? Because we can't get away from the fact that things were different back then than they are now. So we have to know this. There is something that's particularly true for the Corinthians, but also something that's generally true for every church at all time. Otherwise, God would not have allowed this letter to be considered part of his word. So we can't just say, well, that's just the Corinthians, and they seem to have a problem with people speaking up. No. This is, there's something in here, because God has said, this is my word, but we need his help to understand what is in it for us. So obviously, honor and dishonor, grace, and disgracefulness, these are all unique to the culture and the time that you live in. Even right now, you could go to other parts of the world where honor and grace and decency would look different. So I think one general principle is when we gather together, let's gather together and order our time of worship in such a way that if an outsider walked in, they would not think that we are indecent or, or, or disorderly or crazy or wild or dishonoring to one another. And that would look very different today than it might have looked in Paul's day. But I'll tell you what, there are still things that Allie can do or not do publicly that make me feel disgraced or dishonored. And I believe I have the gift of prophecy. So if she were to challenge me right now, some of you might not feel disgraced, but I would. That would hurt really bad. I don't know if I could recover from it. And Paul's saying, guess what? Allie, you get to say exactly what you're thinking right now. Just wait till we get home, and then let me have it. That's what Paul's saying. But there's still these levels of decency and order. So we obviously order our service differently than, than the church in Corinth was ordering it, but we do have order. We don't go forever, though. We go longer than some would like, and that's okay. God is not a God of order or disorder, but of order. Now, because I've brought up the topic, I just feel like I need to do some foundational teaching real quick on uh, how men and women work together in leading Sedaris Church and teaching and preaching at Sedaris Church and sharing their gifts of prophecy and revelation and, and all this stuff, okay? 
And uh, I want to make one other point about, I want to make it crystal clear that Paul can't here mean that women should never speak in the church or speak from the platform. I don't think this can be true because what did we, what did we study in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? So you could turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What did he say there? Look at this. Um, I'm just going to, well, let's see. Let's start in verse 4. Actually, verse 3. Verse 3. It says, But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So you see there's order here. And then he goes on to say, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. And then it goes on to say, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since this is the one and the same thing as having her head shaved. Uh, Scroll down, for if a woman doesn't cover her head, verse 6, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should wear a covering. So Paul's talking about when we gather together, and this isn't their culture, so not our culture. There's, there's, a, there's a way of showing honor to your husband, which is wearing a covering over your head. No longer true, so we don't need to do that. The, this has changed. So we don't, we don't do that, but we still want to honor our head. But, but the key thing I want you to see is, who prays and prophesies? The men pray and prophesy with their head uncovered, and the women pray and prophesy, same words, with their head covered. So this can't mean... In Paul's situation, that he's saying women aren't to speak at all when they come together. So they're clearly praying and they're prophesying when they come together, but there's a way to do it that is proper. Jump down to verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Okay? So judge for ourselves. Is it proper? And then fill in to do this or to do that. God is asking us to ask that question. But there is a proper way and there's an improper way. There's a, a way that leads to honor and a way that leads to dishonor. But it doesn't mean that women shouldn't be a part of expressing the gifts of utterance when we gather together. Let's make that crystal clear. It's probably clear. Again, what's hard about this for me is we don't have a problem with either of these issues at Sedaris. Like, like you guys aren't speaking in tongues way too much and I can't <laughs> control you, Okay. You could use a little bit more of that, perhaps. And we don't have a problem with men and women sharing and not honoring one another when we gather together. We have men and women using the gifts of utterance when we come together in beautiful ways, and it's not even a problem. So it's like, do you talk about it? I want to talk about it so you understand it in part so that you can explain it to somebody who might have a view of the church as, I'll just say it nicely, buns backwards, or old-fashioned, or medieval, or this. No, you want to be able to explain to them why it is that we might do the things that we do or why it is that the church has had certain positions over the years. I want you to be able to understand that. So, one, that you don't break fellowship with those people who might come to a different conclusion because I want you to see the text that they're looking at and they're trying to apply that the best they know how. And some of us are going to be a little bit more risk-averse in this And we're going to say, listen, Paul said this, and I don't want to cross that line accidentally because crossing that line, Paul says, creates unhealth. So I'm just going to kind of not get too close to that line. Others are going to to look for 
ways to express that fully, and, and some might even cross the line that will lead to unhealth, and they may need help, but I want you to have grace and charity for everyone, understanding the text that they're trying to be faithful to, and be able to explain that to the world so that the world might not, the world believes untrue things about the church of God. If you can know how to explain that or why we're seeking to have decency and honor, and why we might have different interpretations of that even than what the world does, perhaps it will remove a boulder for them that they might consider the person of Jesus. The most important question ever asked, I was wearing a shirt this morning, is who do you say Jesus is? The most important question anyone could ever ask. And if something's in their way, like women in Christianity or women being suppressed in Christianity, if that question's in their way so that they can't ask the most important question is who is Jesus? It's our job to lovingly help remove that by being able to explain, hey, this is why, this is the way it is. We see now as in a mirror, a bronze mirror, dimly, we're trying to figure it out, we're trying to do our best. We may be right, we may be wrong, but this is what we're trying to be faithful to, okay? I want you to be able to see that. I want you to be able to see it. Um, Okay, so Paul can't mean to be silent all the time. If you were to turn to Romans 16 and you'd, you'd, you'd hear about a woman named Phoebe who seems to be the person that Paul entrusted to take his letter of the Romans, which most think is perhaps the most important document in Western civilization, he entrusts Phoebe, a woman, to take that message to another church. And so he writes about her. He says, honor her. She's a deacon in her church. Honor her. She's the letter carrier. She's my co-laborer. She's highly influential. So Paul, the same one that said this, can't mean the worst possible interpretation of this that some have put on him. He has utter respect. He gives one of the most important tasks to a woman named Phoebe. And then you can read other places in the book of Acts about Priscilla and Aquila coming along, a preacher of the word, and helping correct his false understanding of the gospel. So we have women teaching. You could go to um, first, uh, no, you could go to Titus 3, and you could, you could read about Paul writing to Titus uh, that the women of the church need to ch- teach the other women of the church. So they have the gift of teaching. Um, but... Even with all of that, you cannot just rip out of your Bible these passages. And the most important one is 1 Timothy chapter 2. So 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm running out of time. Okay, 1 Timothy, I'm about to teach you some huge, amazing theology in one minute. Okay, so 1 Timothy, we're going to have it on the board for you. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 7 starts like this. You can't just rip this piece out of the Bible. You have to... You have to come to terms with it. You have to consider, what is he saying? So he says this, For this I was appointed, and Paul's speaking, he's writing to Timothy, who he had sent to the church in Ephesus, because it also was moving out of step. He sends him there, and he writes this, For this I was appointed a herald, an apostle. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. I'm an apostle. This is a really important title. And then he says, And a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, so he's trying to explain why that's important. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing with decency. There's that word decency again. Seems to be important to Paul. And good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold. Here we have head coverings and hairstyles again coming up. Um, Or expensive apparel, but with good works, as is proper. There's that word propriety again, the properness of it all in that culture for women who profess to worship God. 
Okay? Then he says, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. Again, don't hear, not uttering like quiet as a mouse. Hear with restraint and proper reverence for those speaking and for their husbands and whatnot. Um, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she should remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. It's the whole sermon itself. I'm going to give it to you right now. I want you to be aware of this so that if you have a friend who would read this and say, but this is what the Word of God says, I want you to know they're right. This is what the Word of God says. Then if you have a friend that says, yes, that is what the Word of God says, and here is how I understand what Paul is doing and saying and how it applies to us today, as long as they're saying, I know this is, I'm not ripping this out of my Bible, but this is how I understand it, I want you to have charity and grace for that person. But here's what I think Paul is getting at. It's, very, it's a very, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this so fast. It's a very important argument. There were false teachers in Ephesus that had come in after Paul had left. They came in and they started teaching new doctrine. You say that the Bible, or you say that God is this, that God is unchanging, we say God is changing. He's evolving. He's bec- That's new doctrine. We don't know exactly what the new doctrine is, but if you study the book of Acts and you study these letters, it's clear that some very gifted teachers had come in, male teachers had come in, and they are teaching new doctrine. They were saying, we have authority over the apostle Paul. That's why he's saying, guys, I'm an apostle. I'm not lying. It's my job. I'm a herald of the good news. I'm a teacher. I've taught you good, sound doctrine. I've laid the foundation. And these guys that are coming in, these men that are coming in with with great jibber-jabber that can talk me maybe out of a room, they are not apostles. And so if they teach something as authoritative over me, they're wrong. If they teach something that's in accord with what I've already taught, then this could be from the Lord, helping you understand, bringing clarity. But they're teaching something new. And what seems to be happening is there was a group of younger widows who had, had, had um, fallen to love this new teaching. And they were going around to all the house churches in the area, supporting these new teachers and sort of breathing life and energy into this movement that was teaching new teaching, new doctrine. And Paul's saying, listen, guys. He's saying, listen, Timothy, because he sent Timothy to go help correct, to move him back in step, and to lead the church. He's saying, you've got to be aware. And so that's the context in which he says these things, that I do not allow a woman to teach. And, and I want your eye to go back up to the first verse we read, verse 7. He says, I am a teacher. So I think, I think our, our eye should connect there to teach as I teach or to have authority as I have authority. I think that's what he's getting at. So that's to the Corinthians, so what does that mean to us? Paul could have used so many other words for things that he was not allowing uh, women to do. In the same letter, he uses the words to Timothy, I want you to instruct, I want you to teach, I want you to prophesy, Pray, petition, give thanksgiving, intercession. I want you to command. 
I want you to give public readings. I want you to give exhortation. He says teaching again. He says command again. Teaching again. He says encourage, which is the same root word for exhort. And then he says instruct. And then he says guard and protect. So he's got access to all these verbs of what, and he picks teach and have authority. And I think Paul knows what he's doing. He's saying there are particular functions and responsibilities within the body of Christ that, that God has assigned and gifted a certain few called, trained, and tested men of the church to carry. And so, those who try to carry those things without my design, this could lead to unhealth. And so then what does he do? He brings up the Adam and Eve story. What's the Adam and Eve story? The Adam and Eve story is that God had given commands and instructions, foundational teaching to Adam and Eve. A serpent comes along and says, Hey, Eve, did God really say that? Are you sure his doctrine is right there? Let me give you just, just, a, just a tiny bit different doctrine because I think God's trying to keep something good for you. And Eve then was able to convince Adam. And they eat. So that's what Paul has in mind when he, he's thinking about this here. He's not saying this is always what happens or that we need to be scared of women. He's just saying there are certain responsibilities that Adam didn't uphold that led to unhealth that if in your Ephesus church you don't upheld, or in Sedaris church we don't upheld the proper order here, it could lead to unhealth. And I don't want that for you. He's definitely not saying that women can't teach or don't have the skill or the talent or the gifting to teach, obviously. He doesn't use the words instruct. Women can teach and instruct. They can give prophecy and prayer, as we've said before, public thanksgiving. They can sing a hymn. They can give um, instruction. They can give encouragement and exhortation. But the one thing, if you turn to the very end, and I didn't put this on the slide, so I'll just read it to you, or you can flip in your Bible, that he says to Timothy, the last thing he says, the very last, uh, second to last verse, he says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. What do you think Paul has on heart? He's like, let me just finish with this to make sure you understand what I'm saying. Guard, guard what? Guard the sound doctrine that you were entrusted with. It's your job to guard. Who else's job is to guard? The famous passage on elders and deacons is in chapter 3. Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy. Chapter 3, verse 1. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, what is an overseer? A protector, a guard. He desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. God, and it's very clear, I think, in all of Scripture, that the, the role of elder overseer is given to a select few men and women. That's how we do it at Sedaris. We have a senior leadership team. We have a select few men who are elders who are called to guard what has been entrusted, which is sound doctrine. And if anybody comes teaching new doctrine, it's our job to Bobby Boucher them in a loving way and make sure they're not pulling people astray and out of step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. 
and then God will gift women and men to be deacons, to serve the church, edify the church, give a word of knowledge, give a message of wisdom, uh, sing a hymn, uh, pray over the people. All these things that we see from the beginning with Moses, Miriam, and Aaron, these men and women leadership teams expressing their gifts. We see it with Deborah and Barak working together to accomplish the means of God, all for the glory of God, and all decently and in order. But we have to take all of God's word seriously. I think that's all I've got to say about that. No, I don't. I've got to say this. I've got, I got to celebrate my wife here for a sec. This isn't super fun stuff to talk about. But I asked my wife, after studying it all week, I asked her, I said, Allie, how do I talk about this? I want to honor women, I want to honor men, I want to honor the word of God, I want to honor Paul and not just say he doesn't get it. How do I talk about it? And I said, Allie, because if you know Allie, you know this. Allie, I said, you have the gift of teaching. How do I talk about the difference between you and me? This is what she said, I love my wife so much. God spoke a prophetic word through her in this moment. She said, Dave... We both teach, but I don't teach like you teach. She didn't mean skill, because if you've heard Allie speak, her oratory skill is above mine. Her way with words is greater than mine. Here's what, and, then, and then she said this. She said, Dave, I have absolutely no desire or feel no responsibility to teach the people of Sedaris about biblical inerrancy. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> biblical inerrancy is the doctrine that the Bible is the Word of God. Every part of it is the Word of God. God made no mistakes, and she was right. I would love it if you'd let me talk for two hours about biblical inerrancy. I would have a desire. I feel a responsibility that you understand that this is the Word of God, and you should love it, and you should do nothing to rip any part of it out. And she was right. She's always right, usually. She's always right most of the time. <laughs> But the thing is, she was so right here. This is exactly what Paul's talking about. There are certain people who God puts a desire and a responsibility on to teach weird stuff like the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, Allie loves the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture. She'd fight for the inerrancy of Scripture. She would try to explain it to you, but then she'd say, go talk to Dave. This is what he's responsible for as the teacher at Sedaris Church. And then we could bring her up and she could share an encouragement, an exhortation, a word of wisdom, a word of knowledge, no problem. Without feeling the weight of making sure that the foundational doctrines of this church are protected and guarded and that no new doctrine is taught with authority over and above the apostles. She doesn't feel that. And she said to me, Dave, I love that about this church. She said, Dave, don't you remember when I was giving that sermon at that women's event and I came to you and asked you to look over it for me? I'm so glad I had somebody to go ask about that. You didn't ask me to look at it, Dave, but I wanted you to look at it. And that honored me. And she felt cared for and supported. And I think when we get wrapped up in all of this, at the end of the day, we have to remember that's what the Apostle Paul wants. That when we gather together, whether it's on the issue of speaking in tongues or on the issue of uttering any spiritual gift as a corporate gathering, that we would seek love 
and empowerment even as we seek order and decency. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.